you know, the, the big fear, of course, is leaving a child in harm's way. Right. But taking a child out of a loving, uh, caring family when they are not at risk is also a tragedy. And yes. this was the first time that anyone had looked at that kind of tragedy in the child protection system. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mapp. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the Project Manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarlane at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. The director. You're the director. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm the director. Oh, I forgot to be important. Sorry. Yes, you have to remember to be important, (laughs) Julie. We won't let you forget that. (laughs) So today's episode is um, a little bit different than our normal format, I think in an exciting way for an exciting reason. Mm. Um, But the main person that Julie is talking to in today's episode is a lawyer named Kate Kehoe. Kate was counsel to the Children's Aid Society of Toronto from 1999 to 2007, and she's now a consultant in Ottawa and has acted as a policy analyst and writer for the Mother Risk Commission, which I know, Julie, you're going to tell us a little bit about right. what that is. Yeah, some of the listeners might be familiar with Kate because she has blogged for us in the past, and she has a long background in child protection work and also working on access to justice issues. And Kate was our pro bono counsel in our intervention, which she's going to be talking about in this episode in the Ontario Court of Appeal, in what turned out to be a very important case for self-represented litigants, and in particular for self-represented parents in child protection cases. So I'm just going to give a little background, and then we're going to let Kate's interviews speak for themselves. One is recorded before the hearing, in anticipation of what we hoped would happen as a result, and one is recorded after the hearing. We're going to be discussing summary judgment procedures, which I think, again, many of the listeners will have heard us talk about, and certainly if uh, people have been following the blog. NSROP has been worried about summary judgments (laughs) being used prematurely to end self-represented litigants' cases for some years now. We had a 2015 report that pointed out the enormous rise in the use of summary judgments against self-reps and the astonishingly high success rate. Summary judgment effectively ends a case without a trial. And so it's always been historically seen as something that should only take place if it's clear that there is no more meritorious evidence that could be brought forward at a trial. And instead, what we've seen increasingly in recent years, and this was how Kate got involved, having been part of Children's Aid uh, while she was counsel for them, is that the use of these summary judgment procedures to basically get rid of parents who don't have legal counsel at an early stage before they actually have to get to the trial level and have the evidence tested. And this raises all kinds of obvious unfairnesses. Mm. Hence the intervention that she's going to be talking about. Uh, One other thing I just want to say in terms of background, because this is going to come up, is that Kate, as Dana has mentioned, worked for the Mother Risk Commission. The Mother Risk Commission was a commission focusing on child protection cases that reported in 2018 and had discovered that the testing being used at the Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto for hair and urine samples of parents and children for cocaine and alcohol and other substances had in fact included many mistakes and that there were Indigenous families in particular and families of, uh, of families of color who were being mistakenly identified in these tests for using cocaine and alcohol and so forth, and a total 
of 56 cases in which children were removed based on these test results. So that's another part of Kate's background, gives you a bit of a sense of how engaged she is with these issues around protecting access to justice for parents who are up against Children's Aid Society and ensuring fair procedures. So let's listen to the before and after. Hello, Kate. How are you this morning? Very well. How are you doing, Julie? Good, good. Thank you so much for being willing to do this. Really appreciate it. And we have a lot to talk about. So let me plunge in here. You know that, and I think some of our listeners will also be aware that we have had some concerns for some time, the National Self-Represented Litigants Project, about the very, very large rise in the use of what are called summary judgment procedures against self-represented litigants. And we have also seen in an earlier study that we did a very high rate of success, 95% um, in those uh, procedures that effectively end the case for a self-represented litigant. So I know that as a formal Children's Aid Council, Kate, you have a perspective on this. And I wonder if you could begin by explaining what this summary judgment procedure would mean for parents challenging a children's aid society decision, but who have no legal representation. Sure, I'm happy to talk about that. Well, child protection cases are, in general, they're difficult for any unrepresented parent, whether or not the society brings a summary judgment motion. Mm. And, mm. and the parents are usually involved with the system because they're already facing challenges that other people may not be. Their mental illness, addiction, poverty, low literacy. So they are going to face a significant difficulty in actually responding effectively to any child protection proceeding. And the Supreme Court has recognized that. In summary judgment cases, those are even more difficult for anyone to respond to. Experienced lawyers have a hard time winning those cases against the society. And so when you have an unrepresented parent, it's almost impossible. So Kate, some of the people I imagine listening to this podcast may be already scratching their heads and thinking, wait, parents who are facing a, a children's aid decision, which is obviously a very significant decision in relation to their families, they don't get legal counsel if they can't afford one? They generally do. Legal aid is available to parents in child protection proceedings, and that is because of a Supreme Court decision, the same one that I mentioned before. The problem is that the legal aid thresholds are very low. A person has to be very poor to qualify for legal aid. And there are not a huge number, but a significant number of parents in child protection proceedings who are working. They are earning money, but they're not earning the kind of money that they would need to hire a lawyer, right. particularly right. in these very complex, time-consuming cases. Right. So they're in the same situation as so many of the other people that we hear from. They fall between those those two stools. So can I just go on to t talk a little bit with you, Kate, because I think this will be something that's really important background to your expertise about your work on the Mother Risk Commission, which I, which I explained a little bit about in our introduction, because this issue of lack of legal representation for some parents is just one of the ways in which the legal system treats parents and especially Indigenous families unfairly. And the Mother Risk Commission looked at some particular aspects of that. So could you say a little bit about how that work 
has influenced your views on this very difficult balance that we're always seeking between protecting children and protecting family rights? Sure. I mean, I was already familiar with the imbalances in the system because I I worked at Child Protection Council for many years, and I remember being concerned about it. But what working on the Mother's Commission really did was, you know, when you actually see the system fail, then you start to be able to identify and you need to be able to identify what allowed that failure to happen. If the system worked properly, if parents' counsel were properly funded and if everyone had access to counsel, if uh, it was accepted and encouraged for parents to challenge uh, Mm. test results that they didn't agree with, if there was more caution and more thought given to, yes, we want to protect children, but it does not help a child to remove them from a family unnecessarily. That is the worst thing, almost the worst thing that we can do. It's not, you know, the the big fear, of course, is leaving a child in harm's way. But taking a child out of a loving, uh, caring family when they are not at risk is also a tragedy. And yes. that this was the first time that anyone had looked at that kind of tragedy in the child protection system. Right. So it really did highlight a lot of these problems that exist. And, and there were a lot of things that I had not realized. For example, parents counsel when they are provided through legal aid, mm. only given eight hours paid work to respond By legal to aid. summary judgment. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so, I mean, I you could not, res- that's one day of work, right? And right. you're looking at hundreds of pages of evidence and the complicated legal test and having to get the parent to file an affidavit. And I mean, I can't even imagine how you could do it in less than several weeks. So the parent's lawyer has to choose between responding properly yeah. or not getting paid. And these are not people who earn a lot of money to begin with. Another thing that really came up in, in Mother Earth was the issue of Indigenous families and racialized families and how overrepresented they are in the system and how the Mother Earth testing and the culture around addictions and substance use problems really uh, cause significant disadvantages for those communities in particular. And some of the stereotypes that are raised about that, they really came out in, in the report, I think. That's right. Assumptions that people in those groups are more likely to use drugs or alcohol. And also the testing itself actually showed cocaine shows up more in black hair. So there's physiological problems as well. So I want to just move on to the case that you are very generously working on for the NSRLP as pro bono counsel, uh, the upcoming case that we are intervening in. And I've said a little bit about what that would mean in my introduction. We have been working on this case with you, Kate, because it seems like it's an opportunity to clarify just how and when summary judgments should be used against self-represented litigants. And I wonder whether you could say a little bit in anticipation of this case, which will be heard in a few weeks from now, that would help people to understand what the issues are here that we're going to be trying to make arguments about. Sure. So this is a case that's being heard by the uh, Ontario Court of Appeal. They don't often hear cases uh, involving child protection. And this case actually went to another level of appeal before it got here. It went to the divisional court. The divisional court's judgment was very troubling. It essentially equated summary judgment in child protection proceedings with summary judgment in every other kind of proceeding. Mm, it's, mm. It said they should be used. There's no reason not to use them in this context. Uh, there's no reason to be more cautious. The court should assume they have all the evidence before them. And there was no allowance really made for this 
particular context on the fact that we're dealing and with the children. And the scope and the scale of this, yes. Yep. That's right. And and how difficult it is for parents to respond. The, the judgment referred, I think, 14 times to summary judgment motions being a cheaper way to resolve legal issues. And yeah. I think that is a totally inappropriate consideration when you're dealing with families and their rights under the Charter of Rights, future of children. And it's only cheaper for the society. It's not cheaper for the parents. Quite. And so what is it that you hope might come out of this case, best case scenario, if the Court of Appeal listens to expert advice? Well, we are intervening along with a number of other groups. A number of issues have been raised in this case. The mother is, in fact, represented, but um, with the help of uh, the law firm of Lensner Slat, uh, who were very generous with their time, we were able to get permission to intervene to speak to the issue of how these motions affect self-represented people in particular. Right. And our, our position on the appeal is that these motions should be used very sparingly, that the court has to be very careful about what kind of evidence is going to be used, and that when, the, when a motion is brought against a parent who is not represented, the court should actually appoint counsel for that person, whether or not they qualified for legal aid. And we are supported uh, in our submissions by some of the other interveners who are taking similar positions, including the uh, Association of Counsel Who Represent Parents, who are also very concerned about this divisional court judgment. Well, it's going to be very interesting to see how this shakes out, Kate, and I'm going to talk to you again in a month or so when we know more. So thank you for setting this out this morning. My pleasure. Hello, Kate. Hello. Thanks very much for doing this this morning, and I'm excited to talk to you about the second half of this story because I think you have some good news for the people who are listening and are concerned about self-represented litigants and child protection cases. So why don't you just go straight in and tell us, first of all, what does the decision say about the use of summary judgment to prematurely end cases being brought? So in the child protection context, which of course was the context of the case, the court made uh, a number of very significant rulings uh, and directions. The overriding recommendation or direction to lower courts is that they have to exercise caution uh, Mm -hmm. when considering whether to proceed by summary judgment in a child protection case. And that had been uh, the, the divisional court decision that had been appealed from had essentially said that all of the old jurisprudence that said that you have to be very cautious when you use summary judgment in child protection cases was no longer relevant. Mm. Well, the Court of Appeal said, no, it is still the law. You still have to be very cautious in proceeding by summary judgment in child protection. What was the rationale for being cautious about doing this? These cases involve the charter rights of parents and their children and they have profound implications for these families. They are not about money. They are not about issues that, uh, although very important to the litigants, are not, you know, do not go to sort of the core of our experiences as human beings the way intervention in our family relationships do. And they also don't usually involve the power of the state uh, and infringements of uh, charter rights. So so that was the the main reason um, that the court gave. But the court also talked about the particular circumstances of the parents in these cases. So it's not just that 
their charter rights are involved and their family relationships are at stake. It's also that most of the parents involved in child protection are marginalized. They are poor. They are racialized. Often they uh, are uh, facing challenges relating to addiction or mental illness or physical disability. And so those considerations also come into play and also justify taking a very cautious approach to summary judgment motions. So the bar, which used to be, as you say, historically set pretty high to do this, and then we had been noticing some lowering of that bar and the greater use of summary judgment for, it seemed, less substantial reasons, the bar just got raised again. Is that, is that fair to say? That's right. And in, in some ways, I would say it's actually been raised even higher. In addition to reinforcing the need for caution in these proceedings, the court also clarified a few things that had never really been um, determined in the case law because the Court of Appeal had never addressed it. And one of the main ones was the level, the kind of evidence that has to be used in these proceedings. There'd been a debate in the lower courts about whether societies could rely on hearsay, on expert evidence that had not been tested through mm. um, the proper Both procedure. Yeah. Exactly. And some courts had said it would defeat the purpose of having a summary judgment motion if you had to be so strict about the evidence. So as long as it seems sort of fair, we can we can rely on hearsay, we can rely on expert evidence. Other courts had said, no, the, it, it doesn't make sense. You can't just use a different procedure and water down the evidentiary requirements. And the Court of Appeal agreed with that second approach. They said, no, it has to be trial-worthy evidence. They also said that it's the court itself who has to screen for that evidence. You can't just rely or or require the parents to say, oh, don't rely on that evidence, it's hearsay. It's actually the court who has to make sure that the only evidence that the society is relying on is admissible evidence. Well, that's really significant, too. And, of course, we shouldn't forget that this also was a case involving an Indigenous parent, and there was a discussion about the importance of using culturally uh, significant factors in making decisions around those children in those cases. That's right. This case was the first time that the Court of Appeal has considered the new legislation that was uh, passed in 2018, which really significantly alters the approach to child protection in cases involving Indigenous families. And the court made some very good statements about the need to consider all of those obligations at every stage of a proceeding, including in the summary judgment motion. Now, one of the things that we've talked about uh, at the project for some time now, of course, is the use of summary judgments generally against self-represented litigants, because, as you know, we've seen a real rise in the use of that procedure, and it sometimes raises issues very similar to the ones that you're talking about here, that there wasn't really a fair trial of the of a testing of, of some of the evidence that was used to end people's cases. So did you see anything in this decision, Kate, because this is, I know, part of how you presented this argument, that will be important for self-represented litigants generally, not just in child protection cases? With respect to self-represented litigants in child protection cases, the court did adopt the test that I had asked them to. So they have now put right into the test for summary judgment a requirement for courts to abide by the duty to assist self-represented litigants in mm. these motions and specifically referred to the statement of principles. The court had this court, the Ontario Court of Appeal, had previously 
referred to the statement of principles in summary judgment motions in the civil context. Mm-hmm. So it isn't new. It was new in the child protection context for the Court of Appeal to confirm the judge's duty to assist yeah. in summary judgment motions, but it was not new in the general summary judgment context. Yeah, and the other thing is that I think the, the court, one of the really important um, aspects of this decision for summary judgment in general is that it it looked at what fairness actually means. Mm. The Supreme Court in Herniac, which was, of course, the decision that sort of opened up yes. summary judgment as a as a more uh, sort of regular, um, non-exceptional means of resolving civil cases, it t- it required courts to proceed by summary judgment only where it would be fair and just, uh, where they would be able to uh, fairly and justly determine the merits of the case using summary judgment. And this decision really gets into what fairness means. It's not a sort of general principle. It actually requires the court to think about this particular respondent, their circumstances, Mm. what's Mm. at stake in the case for them when thinking about whether summary judgment is appropriate. So I do think it, it, it will be referred to, I hope it's referred to, in summary judgment cases in outside of the child protection context in the future. Well, and, you know, just as a final point, one of the things that, of course, we've seen since Herniac is, as you say, a lot of different ways of understanding what this call to fairness, uh, which the Supreme Court of Canada made in that case, really means. And we've seen cases that have talked about uh, the efficiency of the process in a way trumping individual rights to have a full hearing. And, you know, that theme of efficiency and not clogging up the courts, wasting courts time and so forth has been, you know, a very dominant theme in a lot of these cases since Herniac and has always left us wondering, is that really what Herniac meant by fairness? And it seems to me that this in a way is kind of resetting that balance a little bit, would you say? I think so. And I think it also, it puts the onus back on the party yes. bringing the summary judgment motion. Yes. Uh, because the divisional court had also said uh, in their decision that really there's no onus. It's just whether the evidence shows that there's no genuine issue for trial. And the Court of Appeal said, no, the onus is on the party bringing the motion. And even if the respondent, in this case the parents, does not show that there's a genuine issue for trial, uh, the court can't proceed unless the uh, party bringing the motion has shown that there is no genuine issue for trial. Right. So I think in that respect and in terms of its focus on the individual circumstances of the respondent and the issues that are at stake, yeah, I think it it, it does go a long way toward refining the Herniac test um, in a way that should assist self-represented litigants in the future. Well, that's really huge. So um, We're so grateful to you, Kate for the work that you did on this. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Tammy Law is a family lawyer in Toronto who specializes in child protection cases. She's committed to working on settlement using collaborative and mediation processes, but Tammy also sees the courts as a place to advocate for change. In this case, Tammy represented another intervener, the Ontario Association of Child Protection Lawyers. And her brief was to bring forward the concerns of parents' counsel that using summary judgment to end challenges to children's aid society decisions was unfair and could result in miscarriages of justice. 
In my conversation with Tammy, she describes the importance of the Coartha decision and what it means and reflects on the subsequent legal aid cuts that have effectively eliminated the advances made here. Hello. Hello, Tammy. It's Julie calling. How are you? Great. Good. Thank you so much for doing this this morning on what I know is a very busy day, but I didn't want to finish this podcast without getting your perspective on the issue, and particularly as the person who intervened on behalf of the Ontario Association of Child Protection Lawyers. So I think that people would be very interested to know why this was a case that the Ontario Association of Child Protection Lawyers, represented by yourself, wanted to intervene on. So could, could you start there? The Ontario Association of Child Protection Lawyers is a group that represents parents' counsel. And so one of our purposes is to really advocate for changes to the system that we think would make it more fair for our clients. So this is part of a year-long campaign that we had to really reduce the use of summary judgment motions because we thought that summary judgment is just not fair very difficult to respond to, and there are huge potential for miscarriages of justice. And just to be clear, Tammy, your clients are the parents, not the children's societies, right? Yes, yes. Absolutely. Our members felt that given what was said in the Mother Risk Commission, there's just a huge potential for miscarriages of justice when summary judgments are overused. So that was one of our focuses for the, really over the last year to really try to reduce the use of these types of things um, in child welfare proceedings. Well, you know, I know that when we first did our research on summary ju- judgment use in 2015 at the project, I remember discovering that some of the parties who were using those processes against unrepresented people were children's aid societies and actually doing a double take. And I wonder whether you could talk a little bit about why the courts in this case emphasized so strongly the importance of expert assistance for parents when they are facing a proposal from the Children's Aid Society. Why did they say that was so important? First of all, it was really a recognition of how important these types of proceedings are. When you read the judgment, they do mention again and again that child protection proceedings engages charter rights, meaning that there are fundamental personal interests at stake that are being infringed on by the state. Because it's so important, it's necessary for the parent to be ably represented. And most of the time, that would involve the use of lawyers. The other issue, of course, is that these proceedings are incredibly complex, and in order to to be fair, I think the court recognized that parents must be able to effectively participate. And and we saw, for example, with mother, the Mother Risk Commission, again, I have to go back to that because it yes. really was very significant, that if you don't have effective participation, there will be miscarriages of justice. And I think that was recognized by the court. Just thinking about what parents would have to read as if they were trying to represent themselves, which I imagine would be just overwhelming, the amount of material that they would receive from the societies that they would then have to read and analyze. Even just that, exactly. I can't even imagine how somebody would do that, especially when they are in a situation in which they already feel vulnerable. Exactly. And I think the court also recognized that piece about vulnerable litigants. So there are some really nice passages in the judgment about 
you know, many of the parents that are that find themselves involved in uh, to in with these proceedings are vulnerable and afflicted by poverty or other marginalization. So counsel is important to assist because, as you noted, you know, there there's often you're snowballed by just the volume of materials, and it's it's hard, difficult yes. for a lawyer. So doubly difficult for someone who doesn't have one. Right, and who is obviously extremely emotionally invested in, in the outcome. It's so important to them. So this exactly. is really good news, very happy with the outcome here. But then hot on the heels of, of this reassertion of the importance of being able to meaningfully participate with expert representation if necessary, came the announcement about the cuts in legal aid in Ontario. So could you say something about how we balance all this out? What does that mean for uh, for parents in these situations? Well, to be very clear, I think that the budget cuts are to Legal Aid Ontario completely undermines the successes that we obtained in this judgment, unfortunately. And just as some context, child protection was never properly funded in the first place. That's why we had all these unrepresented parents in the courts in the first place, right? Exactly. And, you know, and just also even in terms of comparing what was funded for Child Welfare Council versus Criminal Council, like there's a huge differential in funding. And so it was never an equal footing in the first place. And a layer on top of that, the Mother Risk Commission's finding, and also repeated in this judgment, that even with counsel, parents were simply overpowered. So we had hoped that with that statement, that would be an indication to, you know, legal aid and the government that this is an important area for them to fund. And so now when they pull back the funding, we think it's going to completely undermine judgment. And, you know, frankly, there's no point in having a right to counsel if the lawyer doesn't have the resources to put up a defense. And we're doubly having a lawyer. It's how long you have that lawyer for and how much they're funded for in a exactly. complicated case like this. Yes. Exactly. And we're worried that it will lead to miscarriages of justice, right? As we've seen in child welfare, it's not easily fixable. We're very concerned about that. Well, I don't like ending on a negative note, but I think in this particular case, that's the realistic one to end on and to balance out our happiness at this judgment with the reality of public assistance uh, declining. Thank you so much, Tammy. No problem. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. In Other News. Welcome back to another segment of In Other News, where we share some updates from the world of access to justice. First up, the Supreme Court of Canada announced that they will be hearing two appeals in Winnipeg, Manitoba, as part of their access to justice efforts. We've linked the video from the Supreme Court of Canada Twitter page, where Chief Justice Wagner explains the announcement. In addition to hearing the appeals, the Supreme Court will also hold a large public event and meet with various groups, including Indigenous communities, the Francophone community, the legal community, and students. The Chief Justice explained, It's important for us to be more accessible to all Canadians, because the Supreme Court is your court. Hopefully, this also spurs more conversations among the general public or among politicians about the need for legal reform to truly make justice more accessible to all Canadians. Our second story is also about the Supreme Court of Canada. As you may have heard, Justice Gascon was briefly reported missing, later found to be safe, and released a statement attributing his absence to depression and anxiety disorders. Mental health is an important topic, both among the general public and in the legal profession. 
and we are grateful to Justice Gascon for publicly stating his history with mental health. Our first episode of this fourth season of the podcast was a discussion with Beth Beattie, an outspoken advocate for mental health awareness among lawyers, and we've linked to that podcast episode, entitled Shaking Off the Mental Health Stigma. We encourage all of our listeners to listen in to that conversation and to continually prioritize their own mental health. For our third story, the University of North Texas Dallas College of Law hosted the 11th annual Open Access Symposium this past weekend, with access to justice being at the forefront of conversations. Topics included open access to primary legal materials and their impact on access to justice, the role of law librarians, engaging the public, emerging tech solutions for access to justice, and a presentation on prototyping and legal innovation. We've linked to the symposium's website, and we recommend you also search for the hashtag UNTOA19 on Twitter to read some of the insights from this symposium. Next up, the Government of Canada hosted a symposium on Indigenous justice systems last week at a two-day event that brought together Indigenous leaders, Indigenous law students, experts, and government officials from across Canada and around the world. The goal was to generate ideas on what Indigenous justice systems could look like in Canada and how they could be integrated into Canada's justice system. We've linked to a short news release from the Department of Justice, and hopefully this leads to productive conversations and action to promote access to justice in the context of reconciliation. Lastly, in case you missed it, NSRLP published a new blog post this past week. The article examines questions of customer service in the legal system. The article dives into the murky territory between legal advice and legal information, noting that this distinction too often results in frustrating outcomes and is spurred on by institutions that lobby for lawyers' interests rather than the needs of the modern-day consumer of legal services. Thank you to Aaron, the SRL who authored this post, for sharing these reflections on his experiences at the tribunal level, divisional court, and the Court of Appeal. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. We'll be taking a short break next week, but join us the following week on June 4th, when Julie will discuss non-disclosure agreements. 